Job chapter 39, we'll read the first four verses. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. In chapter 38 and chapter 39, the Lord humbles Job with a series of questions. The first questions were about creation, the earth, the oceans, the light, the snow, the rain, the stars. And then the Lord continued with a series of questions about creatures. Lions in chapter 39, verses 39 and 30. Ravens in chapter 38, verse 41. And in this chapter, the Lord's going to draw attention to mountain goats in verses 1 through 4. Wild donkeys in verses 5 through 8. The wild ox in verses 9 through 12. The ostrich in verses 13 and 18. The horse in verses 19 through 25. And the hawk in verses 26 through 30. He basically says, do you have any idea when mountain goats and deer are born in verses 1 through 4? Did you loose the wild donkey and care for each one in verses 5 through 8? Do you control the wild ox or does he obey you in verses 9 through 12? Did you give the ostrich its keen lack of intelligence? As you can see, the Lord was not the inspiration for Big Bird on Sesame Street. He basically says, are you aware of the horse or more specifically the war horse? Its unique skills that it possesses to function in battle. The hawk and the eagle and its eyesight. But as we go through the passage and as we continue to unpack the chapter. And we look at the questions. You're going to have a question. And the question you're going to have is, why all the questions? Lord, what what in the world are you doing asking Job all of these questions? And the Lord invites Job to consider the mysteries of the animal kingdom. In part to reveal Job's ignorance and therefore demonstrate Job's inability to serve as God's judge or even question his will or question his wisdom. And in the questions, God reveals his deep care for his creatures. The Bible teaches that God is the creator and the animal kingdom is designed by God and that God cares for his his creatures. And this becomes very, very important because we live in a world where many people don't believe in God or at least the God that they imagine isn't a God who created the specific creatures in a specific act of creation and design and that the qualities and the characters And the instincts of these animals reveal the glory and the majesty of God. Here's the bottom line. The Bible teaches that the animals reveal and reflect the glory of God. 
In his commentary on the book of Job, David McKenna comments on the verbal pictures that God draws for animals, the animals that he loves. He says, quote, the unpredictability of the birthing and development of goats and deer, verses 1 through 4. The freedom of the foraging donkey and onager, verses 5 through 8. The stubbornness of the working ox, verses 9 through 12. The foolishness of the speeding ostrich, verses 13 through 18. The courage of the warring horse, verses Verses 19 through 25. The wisdom of the migrating hawk, verse 26. The perspective of the high nesting eagle, verses 27 through 30. McKenna then comments, quote, Note that with each animal in God's menagerie, it's not only unique in and of itself, but within each animal are complementary gifts and flaws and graces and faults and charms and handicaps. Unquote, and this becomes all very, very important for you and I because now we begin to understand a little bit about our own selves. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 145, verse 16, You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. What the psalmist is saying is that the invisible God is made known in the visible world and the character and the qualities and the attributes of this invisible God are made known in amazing ways when we look into the lives of animals. How interesting. We share something in common with our furry and feathered friends. And that is, if we look at them carefully, we can discover something not only about ourselves, but about God. Look what it says in verse 1, the mountain goats. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Most of us are aware that a human being's gestation is nine months. Yeah, that was pretty easy. Every mom in the building knows the answer to that one. But did Job know the gestation of the wild mountain goats and their instincts and their habits? Now again, you're looking at this question and you're thinking, why even ask this question? Moms, when are human beings most vulnerable? It's the day they're born. Babies are absolutely, positively, 100% dependent on caregivers. Moms and dads. The Lord understood this. When are human beings most vulnerable? When they're born. What about the wild goats? And what about the deer? When are they most vulnerable? When they're first born, but yet their birth doesn't involve any human being whatsoever. They're not the caregiver. The Lord takes care of mountain goats. The Lord takes care of deer. He understands where they go. He understands their gestation. He understands, and he can take care of them. The cynic responds, well, yeah, but... 
But sometimes wild mountain goats lose their young to predators and the deer lose their young to predators and and sadly, tragically, babies die. Today, I heard a quote that I hadn't heard in a whole generation. When I was a very, very young man, gold of my ear said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children, but we cannot forgive the Arabs for forcing us to kill their children. The, the comment itself was, was such that we begin to understand the anguish that takes place when we enter into a broken world and broken circumstances where things happen and, and we understand those things. And so even the question when you ask it, does the Lord allow difficult things to happen? And the answer seems to be yes. And yet the Lord provides order and balance and nature And the truth is that in the grand scheme of things, God is at work in the world. Making sure that the things are unfolding in such a way that for the most part, the wild mountain goats get to bear their young and the deer get to give birth. What is the Lord suggesting? He's he's basically suggesting if I can establish the times when these babies need nurture and protection because they're vulnerable, I know about your circumstance. I know when you need nurture and when you are vulnerable and when you need protection. In verse 2 it says, can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you understand their gestational patterns? Or do you know the time when they bear young? The whole point being that the Lord knows. The Lord numbers their days. He counts their days. He is present at the birth of every wild and living thing. And he was present at your birth. In verse 3 it says, they bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring without a maternity ward, without Obamacare, without health coverage. Their young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, They they depart and do not return to them. Now again, the word translated grain can also mean in the open field. Their young ones are healthy, they grow strong, it either means with the food that they're eating or in the open field. In other words, when 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 a wild animal is born in the open field, they're vulnerable. Vulnerable to predators. They manage to survive. They grow strong. They embark on a life of independent living. And so the Lord is reminding Job that God knows just how long they need to be nurtured before they can embark on a life of self-sufficiency. A Jewish doctor was asked the question, when do you think life begins? And he said, once they graduate from medical school. We think of self-sufficiency being the day that we get to be released from our parents' care. But the Lord reminds Job that God knows just how long they need. And God knows just how long you need. Now again, the, the, the analogy breaks down just a little bit. Because is there ever a time when you lose 
dependence upon the Lord? The answer is no. Is there a time of self-sufficiency that we look for from our parents? Do we really believe the Bible when it says, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one? That doesn't mean that we abandon our love or friendship and fellowship with our family. In the the book of Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 it says trust in the Lord with all your heart lean not to your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths there are opportunities that we sometimes experience which gives us a profound sense of self-sufficiency and so sometimes we will mentally or emotionally sort of distance ourselves from the care and the dependence of God. He points to the wild donkeys. Look what it says in verses 5 through 8. Who set the wild donkeys free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? He scorns the tumult of the city. He doesn't heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture. And he searches for every green thing. In verse 5 it says, who set the wild donkey free? The wild donkey, by the way, is different from a domesticated donkey. If you have spent any time around donkeys, there are two words that don't come to mind. Fleet of foot and graceful. But wild donkeys are fleet of foot. And they're very graceful. Sometimes the wild donkey in the ancient world, primarily in the Middle East, became a type, a picture, a symbol, if you will, of the exploited poor. And so when he says, who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? The onager is another word for for the wild donkey or the undomesticated donkey. The idea being there are certain animals that seem... To thrive when they're domesticated. But there are other animals that don't seem to thrive. It actually was the Lord who first sang the song. That certain animals were born to be wild. I know you like that, don't you? You can actually hear the song playing in your mind right now. And so it says whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling. You see, for most people, wilderness and the barren land doesn't seem like an attractive option. But the Lord allows it to dwell in the wilderness. But I'm going to suggest to you it's something even more than that. Not only does it dwell in the wilderness, but it thrives in the wilderness. It's made, designed, and functions in the wilderness. And look what it says in verse 7. He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The wild donkey doesn't have to worry about the hustle and bustle of the city or the shouts of the driver. And what he means is the slave driver. The wild donkey hates the noise of the big city. The domesticated donkey doesn't mind living in the city and doesn't mind the shouts of the driver. You see, there are two kinds of beings, if you will. Those that work well, being domesticated, and those that don't do well, 
being domesticated. Now, it's interesting, for those of you who have been with me the whole time, and you can remember all the way back to Job chapter 3, verse 18, there was a point where Job complained about the voice of the oppressor. And yet true freedom is being content in the place where God has placed us. And so when, we, when it says he scorns the tumult of the city, he does not heed the shouts of the driver. He means the slave driver. And in this particular instance, he's basically making the statement that some people don't do well when they're placed in bondage or when they are placed and deprived of freedom. And yet true freedom in part is being content in the place where God has placed us. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, you'll remember Paul writes and he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And then he basically says in Philippians 4, I can do everything or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The idea being I can live in under whatever circumstance is necessary so long as I am being strengthened by the Lord. He says in verse 8, the range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. The wild donkey is free to forage the hills for food. But part of the passage, the intimation is the donkey's out there looking for food. But the implication in the text is that God is there all along. Directing, leading, guiding making sure that the donkey will get the necessary food. What is the point of all of this? Again, it becomes a type and a picture of you and of me. God places different people under different circumstances at different times, but all the while, he makes a provision for them. If God can deliver the wild donkey, (laughs) can God deliver you? If God can take care of the wild donkey in barrenness and a wilderness. You know, some of you understand what it's like to live with very little. Someone said, no lunches for me this week. I only have $5 to last me till Friday. Some of you know what it's like to live with top ramen. But here's the point. Yeah, so got some hands. Some people who are willing to... Give a little testimony. But here's the point. If the Lord allows the wild donkey to forage and find food, will the Lord take care of you? Again, what Jesus says in the New Testament, have you considered the lilies of the field? They neither toil nor spin. Remember he said, have you considered the sparrows? And not one of them drops from the sky without your heavenly father being aware. Doesn't it make sense to you? Doesn't it make sense to you that you place your confidence, that you place your faith, that you put your trust in the Lord? And then he points to the wild ox. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Again, certain animals accept domestication. Others resist. 
The wild ox rejects a life of service and burden bearing. The wild ox says, that's not the life for me. Chapter, verse 10, can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes or will he plow the valleys behind you? The idea being, can you go out into the wild, find a wild ox, hitch it to a plow, force it to, to plow your fields? He says, give it a try. The reason why all of this becomes important is there are certain things and certain circumstances and there might even be certain people that you don't have any power over. That they're pretty much going to do what they're going to do. He basically says, can you hitch it to a plow? Can you force it to plow your fields? In verse 11, will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? And it's his way of saying, can you force it to do heavy labor? In verse 12, will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it into your threshing floor? If you do domesticate the wild ox, do you still trust it to pull the carts of grain from your fields? What's the Lord saying? Job, Job, think about this for just a moment. You can't tame the wild donkey. You can't tame the wild ox. Here's part of the point. But I can. Here's what the Lord is asserting. I have control over what you don't have control over. Job, why would you continue to act wild? Why do you bray and buck against me? The Lord alone can tame you and set you free. I don't like to be told what to do. God made you that way. I don't even like to go to church. God knows. I'm not particularly fond of reading my Bible. Boy, does he know. So what will it take to grab you, to discipline you, to direct you? The Lord is in effect saying, if I know what I'm doing with the donkey and I know what I'm doing with the the ox... Doesn't it make sense to you that I know what I'm doing with you? With your life? With your circumstances? With your struggles? With your inconsistencies? With your failures? With your rebellions? It's the Lord's intimation that he knows exactly what to do. And so the questions, oddly enough, invite a certain kind of confidence in the Lord. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator... The Lord is the faithful creator. The Lord is disciplining, directing, motivating. He's molding and shaping you. God is the faithful creator. And so then he he points to the illustration of the ostrich. The wings of the ostrich ostrich wave proudly but are her wings and pinions like the kindly stork? It's his way of saying... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, have you ever seen an ostrich? 
Have you ever seen an ostrich wave its wings? What's the hilarious thing about an ostrich waving its wings? It can't fly, can it? The stork can fly, but the ostrich can't fly. So again, you're looking at this and you're going, Lord, why, why are you talking about Big Bird? Do you have something against Sesame Street? What is going on here? Let me just give you a couple of quick notes. The ostrich used to be native to the Middle East. And do you remember Job chapter 30, verse 29? In Job chapter 30, verse 29, Job said, I'm the brother of jackals. I'm a, a, I'm a companion of ostriches. Job identified with the jackals, and he identified with the ostriches in what sense? In the sense that the jackals are crying, in the sense that everybody laughs at the ostrich. Oh, look at the ostrich. The jackals and the ostriches, people are wailing. Job said, in a sense, I feel like I have a lot in common with Big Bird. And the Lord says, well, Job, in a way you do. You have something in common with, with the ostrich. The ostrich has wings, but he can't fly. It builds no nests in the trees. By the way, where does an ostrich place its egg? In the dirt, the ostrich digs a hole and puts the egg in the dirt. And the ostrich doesn't seem to care whether the eggs get crushed or get trampled. So what do you have in common with this bird? What might that be? Look at verse 17. (laughs) Because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. In other words, the Lord is basically saying, I made the choice to make sure that the ostrich wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. In what way? Again, is he making a scientific analysis or is there a point to the passage? I think that there is a point. I think the Lord is in effect saying to Job, I think you do have something in common with the ostrich. The ostrich in you may not be as smart as either one of you think. Both Job and the ostrich were laughed at because of their appearance. Chapter 30, verse verse 1. Both experienced misfortune. Verses 14 through 16. The difference, of course, is the ostrich doesn't seem to be concerned, but Job is concerned. And that's part of the point. For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. That's how she keeps them warm. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God has deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. In some ways, the ostrich seems to act foolish, seems to expose her young to unnecessary risks. Again, Ryrie says, Her seeming lack of wisdom is not apart from God's plan, just as behind the trials of the the godly, which seem so unreasonable to Job. But therein lies the wise purposes of God. 
Remember, in other words, it's, it's what we're looking at. And, and you've asked the question. I know because you've come up to me and you've asked me, why does God allow this? Why does God allow children to suffer? Why do you see these reoccurring images of Palestinian children dead on TV? You can go and see the Ebola virus victims in Africa. You can see the dead mangled bodies of the downed Malaysian airliner. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world where all kinds of horrible and terrible things are happening. And you're saying, why does God allow this? How could God possibly let this continue to go on? And the Lord presents something that's shocking. And that is in spite of the pain and in In spite of the suffering and in spite of the brokenness, no one is more aware than God himself that we're living in a broken world. And so somebody says, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about all of this pain and all of this death and all of this brokenness? And now we come to, of course, the reoccurring message of the Bible itself. God knows that we're sinners. God knows that we need a Savior. God is going to send a Savior. He is going to die on the cross. He is going to rise from the dead. God is going to begin to put the world back together one heart at a time. He is going to save you and forgive you and redeem you. He is going to save you and redeem you and forgive you. And he is going to gift you and empower you and and enable you. To love each other and minister to one another and pray for one another and serve one another. But does the brokenness still sometimes creep in? Do the pain and the difficulties still come about? The answer is, of course it does. And so what an interesting thought behind the trials. And here seems to be part of the point. Why is the ostrich the way that it is? God made it that way. How are we to explain the trials of the ungodly which, or, or the trials of the godly? Why do bad things happen to good people which seems so unreasonable to Job? And so the Lord invites Job to consider that perhaps God has wise purposes that you're unable to see. Or that you're unable to understand. Or that you're able to put together. And again, remember part of the point of the book of Job is there is this reoccurring scream. And the reoccurring scream is for an explanation. And so the Lord gives a glimpse Of the wise purposes of God. How is it that the ostrich without the ability to fly. With such a careless disregard of its own young. What is it. What is the maternal instinct. That seems so far from the female ostrich. But yet it still manages to survive. And it even manages to reproduce. Have you ever had someone say. That person shouldn't be allowed to be a mother or a father. See, you're laughing because I'm sure you've heard that expression. You shouldn't be allowed to have kids. Why? Just look at your life. Look at your circumstances. And some of you 
understand that if everyone adopted that view, then some of you in this room might not be here. If only smart parents were allowed to reproduce, then certainly the population explosion wouldn't be a real issue. He says in verse 18, when she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. What does that mean? Why does she scorn the horse and the rider? Because she can still outrun the horse and the rider. In other words, one of the amazing things about an ostrich is it can run like nobody's business. And if you don't believe me, try to catch one. And so the Lord invites Job to consider this odd bird. Job, look at the ostrich. Job, doesn't it give you a laugh? Job, could you have dreamed up such a bird? God limited its wisdom, but it can still outrun a horse. God grants wisdom. God withholds wisdom. What does all of this mean for you and me? Think before you speak. Who is the one who possesses true wisdom? Remember what the Bible says. For wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. It says in Proverbs chapter 8 verse 11. If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth. That means he doesn't hold out on you. And it shall be given to you. It says James in James chapter 1 verse 5. And part of the force of the passage in James chapter 1 verse 5 is is if anyone lacks wisdom, the implication being that all of us lack wisdom and at some point each and every one of us is going to be a have to say to God, I don't understand what's going on. Let's see if we can get a unanimous show of hands. How many of you have ever said either to yourself or out loud at some point in your life, To God, I don't understand. Okay, we've got one holdout. No, she's changed her mind. Another holdout. She understands everything after the service. Go see her. (laughs) Most of you raised your hand. Most of you raised your hand because you understood that there are times in our lives where we don't understand. And we wish to God that he would reveal to us what's going on. And look at verse 19. He goes to the, to the horse. He says, have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? He says, Job, consider the horse. Did you create the horse? Well, no, Lord. Did you give it strength or a flowing mane? Well, no, Lord. Can you frighten him like a locust, verse 20? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He's not just talking about Mr. Ed in the 1960s. He's talking about a war horse. He's talking about a horse that seems prepared, if you will, for battle. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him. The issue being the person riding the horse has an 
has, has, a, has a bow and a quiver, and it rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. These are the weapons of war. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. Here is the Lord giving a description of the horse. The horse can leap like a locust. It snorts and strikes terror. Here is the idea. The horse is fearless, afraid of nothing, not afraid of the sword or the arrow or the lance. The horse is a horse that can charge into battle. This week I read the story. I I got an email from um, a particular person who has, uh, has written a book about Sergeant Reckless. Sergeant Reckless was a war horse. She was called America's war horse. So I read up a little bit about her. It said, in battle, Reckless made 51 trips on her own through 35 miles of combat zone to transport nearly five tons of explosives. This is, by the way, during the Korean War. Reckless was promoted to staff sergeant in 1954 making her the only animal to ever hold any legal, officially sanctioned United States military rank. Robin Hutton single-handedly spearheaded efforts to raise a monument in honor of Sergeant Reckless at the National Museum of the Marine Corps, Semper Fidelis Park at Quantico, Virginia, where my son and my my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren have just moved to. A second monument will be dedicated later this fall at Camp Pendleton, California. Life magazine once honored Sergeant Reckless as in a special celebrating our heroes. In the edition, it was George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, and Sergeant Reckless. Reckless one earned two purple hearts along with other military decorations for her valor. She was one of the guys often eating pancakes and bacon with the guys in the mess hall and sleeping in their tents. Reckless's baptism under fire came at a place called Hetty's Crotch or near the villages of Chang Dan and, and Kwok Chang. Though loaded down with six recoilless rifle shells, she initially went straight up and all four feet left the ground the first time the recoilless rifle was fired. When she landed, she started shaking, but Coleman, her handler, calmed her down It said, the second time the gun fired, she merely snorted and by the end of the mission that day appeared calm and was seen trying to eat a discarded helmet. She even appeared to take an interest in the operation of the weapon. When learning a new delivery route, Reckless would only need someone to lead her a few times. Afterwards, she would make the trip on her own. Her most significant accomplishment during the Battle of Panmunjom, Vegas, also known as the Battle of Outpost Vegas or Vegas Hill, over the period of March 26 through 19, March 26 through the 28th, 1953, when she made 51 solo trips in a single day, carrying 386 recoilless rounds, 9,000 rounds, carrying four to eight 24-pound shells on each trip, covering 35 miles each day, the whole Battle of Vegas lasted three days. She was wounded twice in the battle. Once she was hit with shrapnel over the left eye. Another time her left flank. She was 
there was not a standing, there was a standing order not to ride reckless, but, a ba- but at the Battle of Vegas Hill, someone violated the order, took reckless on a joy ride that inc- included a sprint through a minefield. She wasn't injured on the unauthorized ride. For her accomplishments during the Battle of Vegas, she was promoted to corporal. You know, people ask me on my radio program, do you think that there are animals in heaven? And I say, you know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus appears riding on a white horse. And the horse isn't from around here. Do you understand what's happening in the text? The Lord is saying, Job, could you design a horse? Could you design an animal with the elegant combination of raw power, endless energy, endurance, beauty, grace? But I want you to think about this animal. How is this animal different from all of the animals that he's mentioned thus far? It's the domesticated animal. This is the one animal that the Lord has mentioned that is willing to submit Think about it. Raw power, endless energy, endurance, beauty, grace. Think, ready, eager for battle, chooses the place to fight and the person that it will allow to ride. Part of the point seems to be, this is who I am and this is what I can do. The Lord can set the course of battle in history. Part of the point I think that the passage is making is, Job, 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 doesn't it make sense to you that if I can design an animal with such an amazing majesty of qualities, and if I could create you and make you and design you in the exact specifications that I've designed you, Doesn't it make sense to you to trust me? To perhaps even reverence me? The psalmist says in Psalm 33.8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Did I tell you how much I hate the song? Everything is awesome. Every time I hear that song, I think, everything isn't awesome. If everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. And now we've taken a perfectly good word like awesome and trivialized it. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, it says, But the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then he talks about the hawk. Look what it says in verse 26. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? In other words, does the hawk fly by your wisdom in the sense, have you programmed the hawk? Have you given it the unique qualities that it possesses? Oh, by the way, Job, why does it fly south? Now, you all know because you grew up in this world. Why do birds fly south for the winter? Pardon me? 
Yeah, yeah it, it's, to, it, it's for a climate and food and all of that stuff. What is it though? What is it? What, what is the instinct that has been hardwired into them and where did it come from? The philosophical naturalist will say, well, you know, through a series of evolutionary events, dinosaurs became that. Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? In other words, do you get to be in charge? Or who taught the eagle to fly? Who taught the eagle that it is in fact an eagle? Or to build its nest on high? Who designed these magnificent animals? And in the book you have this reoccurring theme. This incredible statement that is made over and over again. It's not just in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's not just in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But right here in the book of Job, God himself goes on record and says, I'm the creator. Not just of heaven and earth, but I'm the creator of all of the animals that reside on this planet. And then he is basically making a statement. And part of the statement is he is suggesting that the animals exist to glorify him. And so does it seem so far-fetched that you exist to glorify him? In verse 28, on the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. Who told the eagle to find the highest point and build its nest there? Contrast that with the ostrich, who finds a hole in the dirt and buries its egg. It says, from there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. By the way, we now know that eagles have a keen, profound sense of vision. I'm nearsighted. I had glasses in the fourth grade. Not just any glass. I mean, we're talking Coke bottle glasses, the kind you can burn ants with in the summer where you take your glasses off and you can actually singe the hair on your arm. And I had LASIK surgery. And through the miracle of modern technology, I have 20-20 vision. I see better now than I've ever seen in my life. The Lord says, I have given the eagle the ability to go where it needs to go. To see as far as it needs to see. Look at what it says in verse 30. This odd verse. It's young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are. There it is. In what sense? And what is he talking about? Is, is Job talking about an eagle? Or is he talking about a vulture? Is he talking about some sort of carrion bird. That suck up the blood. Here's what we know. Clearly we know that birds consume the carcasses of the dead. And and by the way, when you see carrion birds eating the carcasses of the dead, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It depends if you're a scientist 
And you're looking out on the world and you see the carrion birds consume the carcasses of the dead, which prevents the spread of disease. In other words, do the carrions eating the dead create a mechanism so that, again, there's order and design? Do each and every one of us understand every single animal ecosystem on the planet, whether it's under the sea or in the sky or on the ground? I suspect... Many of you might have advanced degrees in science, but none of us probably have a complete understanding of all of the ecosystems that God has designed. Why is this all important? Because when you ask the question, well, God, why do you allow evil? And the Lord basically says, I'm so glad you've asked me that question. And since you're in an inquiring mood and since you want to know so much... Let's have a sit down and let's talk about it. By the way, why does God allow evil? The Bible teaches that God limits evil. The Bible teaches that we lived in a perfect world. And that perfect world became profoundly broken in rebellion and disobedience because human beings were allowed to make a choice between obeying or disobeying God. It would appear that part of the reason seems to be that in order to live in a world where there is real relationship and real fellowship based on a voluntary willingness on the part of both the creator and the created not to be compelled in order to have a right relationship with God but being given permission because apparently whatever love means it seems to involve choice. And the Lord invites Job to consider, can he fly like the eagle or can he see like the eagle? And yet God sees everything. God sees everything. And so the implication seems to be the birds of the air. I've created birds that can see infinitely better and infinitely higher than you. And by the way, can God see clearer and higher than the most magnificent bird that he's ever Created? The answer is yes. Does God see everything? The answer is yes. Does, does God have a complete perspective on everything? I've told you this before, but I really do believe it's true. Someone once said to me that God doesn't have a point of view. God only has points to view. He sees everything clearly. The eagle trusts its instinct. To build its nest high on the rocky crags and cliffs. And what does your heart tell you? What does your heart tell you? Where is it that you build your life? Where is it that you place your circumstances? Where is the perspective that you are looking for as you begin to try and understand the world that you're living in or the God that you serve? Where do you go to get answers to life's questions? What does your heart tell you? Where does it tell you to go in order to get help? 
in order to experience God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. The reoccurring testimony of the Bible is fly to Jesus. Why won't you build your life on Jesus? Why do you resist Jesus? Why wouldn't you do anything other than trust him? Remember what we said at the beginning of our study. God, why are you asking these questions? By the way, is God capable of both asking the question and then providing the answer? What do you think the answer is? He could do both. But you know what's been my experience? With facts, you don't always need faith because you have the facts. And yet the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. Well, Gina, are you suggesting that ignorance is superior to understanding? No, I'm suggesting that without faith, it's impossible to please God. I want you to think about it. I want you to think. I want you to think what's happening in the text. Is Job still suffering? The answer is yes. Is Job still in the trash heap? The answer is yes. Are his children still dead? The answer is yes. Has he still lost everything? Yes. Do his friends have a little bit better understanding of what's going on in his life? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes because God has shown up. God has shown up. McKenna calls this the no man's land. Between known facts and an unknown future. Job is still in a kind of a no man's land. God has shown up, but he still doesn't have a complete understanding of his future. And by demanding that God answer his question why, he assumes that God owes him the facts to explain his affliction and defend his divine justice. Inadvertently, Job has started on a path that leads to humanism and agnosticism and atheism. Why? It was Nietzsche, the atheist, who said, he who, does, he who knows the why can bear with any how. Why is this happening? And now we actually know why in part remember in the first two chapters we're going to discover that at some point Job is going to begin to understand what's happened to him that there's a supernatural invisible world where conversations take place and where futures are determined and for many of you you understand about the struggle. And it's a struggle not with things that are seen, but with things that are unseen. How do you process the invisible internal struggles that take place in your own mind and in your own emotions as you begin to process what's happening to you? McKenna writes this. Why is the question for which Satan promised the answer to Eve in the garden? To her, he said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil in Genesis 3.5. As the intermediate Adam, Job is tempted with the same question. Throughout his contest with his friends and his God, he demands answers to the question, why? Why, why, why? 
In his own way, he feels that his innocence has earned him the right to be as wise as God, knowing good and evil, unquote. Interestingly, McKenna suggests that when Job asks the why questions, God's answer is, who? What do you mean? Lord, why is this happening? I'll show up. In other words, the reoccurring theme in the book of Job is God shows up and he himself becomes the answers to the most pressing questions that we can ask. Interestingly, again, he, sa- he writes, only out of mysteries beyond human comprehension comes trust in the who. Think about the contrast just for a moment. The invitation is, I want to know the reason why. And the Lord's answer to you is, I want you to love me and trust me and believe that I have your best interests in mind. Have you ever had that conversation with a child? Mom, why are you making me do this? Why do we have to do it this way? You know, you can give an age-appropriate response. But often a parent will say to a child, I need you to trust me. I need you to really, really believe that I have your best interest in mind and that the decisions that I'm making, it really is with because I'm thinking about what's best for you. And by the way, we have earthly parents, and sometimes they say they want what's best for us, but are they always able to make a good decision? I think that the safe answer is not always. I'm trying to imagine a parent that with all of his heart or with all of her soul wants to make the wrong decision for their child. That makes no sense to me. But a perfect God, a perfect God invites us to trust him. You know, Billy Graham was right when he said, learn to take your every problem to the Bible. Within its pages, you will find the correct answer. What is your problem? What is your problem? Are you taking it to the Lord? Have you examined the scriptures and searched the scriptures to see if it will yield a satisfying solution to the problem that you have? What is it that you really need? Forgiveness? Hope? What is it that you really need? Maturation? Well, that comes with trust. Who will you trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, Lord, we're searching the scriptures. We're digging deep. We're listening carefully. We're repeating the questions that you're asking. And we're trying to figure out not just simply why they're being asked, but whether or not the answers will cause us to trust you more, to have a deeper confidence, a more profound faith. 
Heavenly Father, we know that sometimes we live in a, in a world where we don't understand. And it makes us very, very frightened. And yet, Lord, the reoccurring testimony of the scripture is an invitation to trust you. Because you know what we don't know. You see what we don't see. You understand what we don't understand. And you invite us to trust you. And so, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what we would do. Because you're worthy to be praised. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of confidence. You're worthy of trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.